0: Excited about this, Danny, because I've known you for like a decade, and it's taken that long to get you on the show. I'm <laughs> sorry. Oh, see, it's there changed. he is. Oh, I, I, I told you it's that Ferroni was going to be on. That was going to happen.
1: Get out of there, Ferroni. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm very glad to be on your show, Vicky, and uh, it, it's. Uh, I'm, I'm very I'm just a pleasure to be here and pleasure to talk to you.
0: You know, you've turned into this lovely guy, and we were talking about this before we came live because there really is a difference in you, Danny. You know, when I, when I got, I, I think I, I'm definitely first met you through Postel, and you were so lovely. You did my book launch, and by the way, you never cashed the check. I still owe you that money. I don't remember how much it was, but you never cashed the check. <laughs> um, sure. But you were you were wonderful. But you you were always with me, very serious. But there's been this change in you, and we were talking before we went on the air, like what kind of caused that change in you? Mm. What do you think it is?
1: Well, I'm not sure that there has been that much of a change in me. I've I've always had kind of a dour expression, (laughs) a serious expression on my face, which is just the way I am. It's not like I'm thinking heavy thoughts, it just looks like I am. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, It's the New York Jew in me, perhaps, (laughs) that that creates that that, that, uh, situation. But there's no question that... um, when I fell in love with Lisa Roy, uh, my life changed. And for the time I got to spend with her, she de- that definitely changed me and gave me a different perspective. So
0: yeah. So so would you say that's like happiness talking?
1: Well, certainly, yes. Okay, yes.
0: So how did you guys meet?
1: Lisa and I. Mm-hmm. We met at the NAMM show, amazingly, which I always resisted going to. Wow. But in this particular one, the section was being honored. If you remember the section, right? Oh,
0: hell yes, I do.
1: Okay, so we were being given an award.
0: Speaking um, of which, Lee is on right now, by the way, saying hello.
1: No, of course he is. <laughs> He's never off the computer, you know. He's Mr. So, mm-hmm.
0: so you guys were getting an award. Yes,
1: yeah, so we're getting an award. and As I walked in, um, she, she was there behind the velvet rope letting people in. And she said, "Hi, Danny. Do you remember me? Because she ran a studio called Ground Control back in the day, and I worked there briefly with uh, an artist. Did some production with an artist. And amazingly, I don't remember her, and I didn't remember her. That's wow! Not be at all. If there's a beautiful woman in the room. I definitely remember. Uh-huh. You know, um, it's true that I was recent that I was married and recently a, a father, but that you know that wouldn't stop me from looking. You know, <laughs> um, so." I really didn't notice her, which is really strange. Because anyway, then, so as I walk in through the velvet rope, she says, hi, Danny, you know, it, it, it's Lisa, you might remember me. And, and I took a few steps and I said, wait a minute. <laughs> I turned around and looked at her and I said, this is the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. And uh, so later, you know, 15 or 20 minutes later, I asked her for her, her number. She reluctantly gave it to, to me. And then uh, we went out on a, a date and, you know, Nature took its course from there. We were in, immediately. For me, it was love at first sight. Really.
0: I was going to ask: Was it was it on from the first?
1: Absolutely. Oh yeah, definitely. Also, Lisa knew everybody. She knew everybody I knew. She she knew all the musicians, all of whom loved her, plus everyone that ran the studios and uh, just everyone. So it was a really good fit.
0: And this is before you got. Was this before you guys became the immediate fan? Before you started the band?
1: Uh, no, no. We had already started the band.
0: Because she started working for you. She worked for you guys, yes?
1: You know, listen, what she did for us was astonishing. And this is somebody very highly paid and very highly thought of. I mean, she, her, well, there's no way in the world we could have afforded what she, her monthly rate that she charged everybody else. But she loved the band. I guess she loved me. And, and uh, she did a tremendous amount of work for us.
0: And as I was saying to you, she was fantastic to deal with. Um, I booked you guys through her a couple of times and she was so easy and so wonderful and so warm. And um, and it's definitely created a change. I've seen a change in you since yes, you connected with her. Absolutely. I mean, yes, there's there's yes. this warm and fuzzy side to you. That's really, that's. It's fuzzy amazing. Me. There's fuzzy you. Mm-hmm. So, all right, Danny. So, I, I did not know. Um, I know that you were from New York. I didn't know from where. You just told me it was Lenox Hill. You were born in Manhattan, but raised in Westchester. So, what was was it like? Were you were you privileged? Were you middle class? What what was what was your background?
1: Yeah, I was raised middle class, um, although, yeah. It, it was middle class. And the block I lived on was middle class people and families and houses. Uh, so, yes.
0: And so did you did you know immediately music was your thing? Did you pick up a guitar? When did that happen for you?
1: Well, I had started to listen. I loved rock and roll as soon as I heard it. The first time I heard Tutti Fruity" by Little Richard, it was all over. It was over. And uh, the fact that my mother hated it also helped. <laughs>
0: That's my next question. What music were your parents listening to?
1: Well, they were listening show tunes, show, show music, and and uh, some very dour uh, European music. <laughs> that my father would put on it, scared the shit out of me. It was like horror music, horror, you know, the soundtracks to horror movies.
0: Where was your father? Where was your what's your ancestry? Where were your people from?
1: Uh, my father's family was from Ukraine. My mother was born in Moscow.
0: Oh wow. Okay. Yes. Our, so, all right. So, so rock and roll was not their, their bag.
1: Mm-mm. No. Looked down on Yeah.
0: And so as soon as you heard it, you knew this is what you want to do or no.
1: As soon as I, I knew I loved it. And then I started um, listening to, uh, I don't know, maybe one of my brother's college friends brought home a couple of albums by John Lee Hooker and Muddy Waters. When I put those on, that's all she wrote. I listened to that and it changed my life for sure. Uh-huh.
0: So when, so, And how did you find your way to, did you know guitar or did you play some?
1: uh, I I really didn't know about the guitar, but my mother thought I I looked cute with the guitar. (laughs) So she bought me a Stella guitar, cheap Stella guitar, made me take lessons, which I loathed. And uh, then I'd be playing my scale. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, But after a while, see everything, nothing's fun unless you get better at it, unless you get good at it, you know. So after a while, I learned the three chords with which you could play everybody Holly song, every Elvis <laughs> song, everything that was on the radio. And that's when the heavens parted. And that's when I said, oh, I can see how I can be a part of this, you know? And that's when I knew I, I had to play the guitar and I had to be a musician, no question.
0: Did you, did you have like a gift from the st- You must've. It mm-hmm. must've come naturally to you from the beginning, I'm guessing.
1: I don't know. I, I can't say that for sure. It's, it's, some of it does. With, with, with did me. you
0: play, would, were you one of those guys that like took the guitar to bed? Were you playing around the clock? Were you incessantly playing?
1: Once, once I started loving it, yes, I played all the time. Mm-hmm.
0: And when were you, When did you first start playing with others? When did you like have your first band?
1: Uh, 16 or 17, you know, I had the high school band, which I don't, unfortunately, do not remember. As soon as I graduated high school, I started a band and that band played all over in Manhattan. All the, all the clubs there, the discos, the uh, you know the dance what were called discos at the time right dance clubs you know and um there was a, a million of them in no, there's a lot of them in manhattan and we played all of them
0: um did you know jerry
1: brandt yeah sure
0: oh yeah okay i worked for jerry when it was spodiotis but later yeah but right. jerry had the one of the first discos yes he did mm-hmm. so okay so you're playing the clubs in new york you're a kid do, do you not go to college do you go to college what what's that
1: that was college.
0: That was college.
1: Not playing those bars, all those, all those bars. We played every kind of bar you could imagine. Like I said, the upscale stuff in Manhattan, but we also played alcoholic bars where they they'd charge uh, 50 cents for a beer when the band was playing and 25 cents for a beer when the band wasn't playing. We played strip joints. We played gay <laughs> bars. We played college bar, you know, college scenes, all of it, up and down the coast, up and down the East Coast.
0: And and how was this going over at home? How were your parents feeling about this?
1: Well, you know, my father undoubtedly was sure that he was gonna be supporting me the rest of his life. And uh, (laughs) he was positive about it. And he was not supportive at all. He He was afraid, afraid for me, afraid that I'd fail and afraid that he would be supporting me forever and ever, you know?
0: Well, it didn't take long for you to have success which we're going to get to in a minute but since we're talking about your dad how did he appreciate your success from the get-go
1: good question i'm not sure because he never mentioned it or told me
0: oh he was like my mother okay we all have one of those us jews
1: well you know you're you're right but the thing is he grew up in a very different environment and and a different culture than i did Mm -hmm. all right in the 60s, you know, everybody stuck their tongue down in everybody's throat. and It was, I love you, I love you so much. You know, that wasn't the case in my my father's generation. Right? You, you didn't wrap your arms around everybody as soon as you saw them. You didn't tell your kids they were the greatest things that ever happened. It wasn't like that. His father didn't treat him like that. And he didn't treat me like that. Yeah. You know, and maybe that's what gave me enough uh, push to go out and uh, do some of the shit I had to do to get over what I mean by that is stand in line to talk to the club owner and be rejected and told to fuck off and, and all that. And I was a shy kid, but I managed to do that because I wanted a band to, I wanted my band to play these gigs so much that I was ready to take shit from club owners, and managers, whatever.
0: And it wasn't that different than talking to your father, I guess.
1: Well, no, they were less scary than my
0: father. <laughs> so, so your father never, with all the success you did, he get did he live to see you have all the success? Yes, he did. And he never gave it up for your success.
1: Never, never. Yeah.
0: Did he like come to see you do some of this stuff?
1: Mm-hmm. Did he ever come
0: to see you do it?
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: And he met he met James he met Jackson he met these people and yeah, yeah sure
1: mm-hmm.
0: and how about your mom
1: my mother was more supportive my mother was more artistic she was a novelist and uh oh. and a writer and she was very very uh, she was a brilliant woman who knew a lot about a lot of different stuff and she was definitely more supportive but she was walking the line between me and my father so there was all mm-hmm. that difficulty uh, how much do i owe you for the this psych the psychiatry lesson by the way you know i'm not even on account well,
0: you know i'm just you know i have Jew- jewish parents i had jewish parents so i i'm just curious about all this stuff because sure. yeah my mother never gave it yeah right.
1: my mother basically per- told me i was going to be homeless on the street young people wouldn't understand that now but the, that generation that that uh, what they call the greatest generation, the wartime generation. A lot of immigrants, a lot of immigrants came over. Both my parents were immigrants.
0: Oh, your parents, uh, okay. Mm-hmm.
1: And and uh, those people didn't treat uh, their children like the little porcelain dolls that, <laughs> that uh, future parents did, you know? Uh, that, hey buddy, hey, could you think you could step into the car, you know? <laughs> there wasn't none of that, all right? Get in the so car.
0: wait, you're a dad?
1: Mm? Yes, I'm a dad.
0: So what kind of dad are you?
1: Get in the car.
0: (laughs) No, you're not a dad like your dad was. No, I
1: love my daughters very, very much. And and they know I love them and I encourage them and everything. But I don't spoil them. I don't tell them that the greatest thing that ever lived. And uh, I don't and I, you know, I tell them, I said, you get arrested for DUI, something like that, you're going to stay in jail. Don't expect me to rush down and bail you out because I won't. I won't. You dig? You know, so that's the way I told you know talk to my kids. But if I also they do
0: talk, you know, something creative, wonderful, you're going to tell them that they're one that it's wonderful. Yes, yes.
1: I, always too. Yes, I always did. But I didn't, I didn't, I didn't butter it up too much. You see, because life ain't like that. Life doesn't think you're the greatest thing that ever happened in the whole universe. You know, so that's why. Although I, they, they knew I did think that. They also knew I knew that the world didn't think that. You know, and I tried to impart that to them.
0: Are they creative?
1: Yes. Right.
0: Mm-hmm. Are they in the
1: arts? One of them is. Uh, mm-hmm. One of them is a social worker. And mm-hmm. one of them is a, a, a songwriter and, and a podcast producer. And,
0: Fantastic.
1: Right. And they're both For very both bright them. and very sharp and very loving and, and incredible people. Yeah i that's,
0: that's a wonderful thing okay so back to you so okay so you 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 play the clubs in New York you're doing the discos you're doing all of this stuff you are you summer in Martha's Vineyard so now at that time as I recall Martha's Vineyard wasn't the Tony well yeah it was kind of the Kennedys were always there weren't they
1: No, they weren't always there. They weren't always there? You know, when I tell people that my family went to Martha's Vineyard every summer, Mm -hmm. they think, oh, you know, what is he, a Rockefeller? I guess (laughs) your parents were zillionaires. No, my parents went there because it was cheap. Really? 1950, Martha's Vineyard was cheap. You could rent a house for the whole summer for $700. Wow. You dig? $700 won't buy you a parking space. (laughs) Now, But then it was a very open, very middle class kind of vibe. Nobody, even people that were wealthy or rich, dressed indifferently, drove crappy cars. No one ever, ever would dream of, of uh, leading with their wealth or, put, or, or you know, running their wealth in front of you. It was a very different uh, uh, place than it is now.
0: And so how old were you when you started going there for the summer? I was like five. Like five, okay. And so, what would your summers look? Did you go to camp? What What did summer look like for you?
1: Well, we just hit the beach, you know. A lot of the time, uh, once I got not when I was five, but when I was it got to be seven, eight, and nine years old, you hitchhike everywhere with your pals. Didn't think oh, yeah. anything out of it. Bye, mom. Bye, dad. You go and you go and you're going all day, or maybe all night too, because you go sleep over at somebody's house, you know. So, oh, uh, the days it's were very, very laissez faire, very open situation, not like it is now, not where everyone's terrified to let their kids out the door.
0: I mean, if, also, if there if were no my cell phones, kids,
1: there's none of that.
0: If right. if if our kid, if my kids tried to do anything like what I was doing, <laughs> mm-hmm. okay, I, I always knew where my kids were, my mother never knew where I was. So that's right. just kind of the word that was so okay so how did you, how old were you and how did you meet James on Martha's Vineyard how did that okay, happen I think I
1: was about 13 or 14 mm-hmm. and uh as usual you know me and some cat we were lo- lollygagging on the front porch of the, the Menemsha store down there
0: the and what store
1: the Menemsha store was a grocery store slash post office uh in, in the fishing village of Menemsha
0: Menemsha yeah okay anyway, uh,
1: so uh, he was hanging around. I was hanging around. Hey, how you doing? What's going on? And then we started bantering back and forth. Then I'll, t- I'll tell you a story. Jay. he says, uh, "Let's uh, let's go steal something," and I go, "I love it, hey, Jamie." That's what we all call him then. No, I still call him Jamie. Um, yeah, you know, let's go around to the, to the little uh, <laughs> antique store around the corner. So okay, one of us was going to, uh, you know, um, be the um, diversion yeah <laughs> just snatch something you know <laughs> so, I can't remember which one I was a diversion yeah and and James snatched a little figurine or something like that he's like we're 13 or 14 at this time and he walks out sure enough the woman recognized him realized something was going called James's parents and James's parents were you know you did not want to have to face them at all James's dad was really intimidating and had a, a big presence. He was this—he looked like a, a a bald eagle, you know—and he had a voice like this, <laughs> get the shit out of you, you know. So they decided that it didn't want me hanging around with with Cooch, that drugstore cowboy.
0: <laughs> they blamed you.
1: Right, right. James—he yeah. told them it was all my idea. <laughs> he ratted me out. Then I'll never forgive him for that.
0: <laughs> so speaking of cooch wh- when did you get that name how did that
1: happen i got that in summer camp around the same period of time 13 14 around there one summer my parents sent me to camp instead of letting me go to the vineyard and uh they couldn't pronounce Kochmar so it came out coochmar and then it was cooch nice
0: all right so when you and james first connected were you both already playing music
1: oh uh, mm-hmm kind of sort of yeah um Yeah, I I knew a little bit more than he did on guitar, a little bit more. But um, he was a fantastic singer. And that was one of the first things I realized. We were hitchhiking somewhere and he just started to sing. And uh, a Ray Charles song or something. I went, wow, you can sing. You can really actually sing. You know, because I knew what good singing was. I'd listen to Ray Charles and Otis Redding. I loved that stuff. So did he. And uh, so I knew what good singing was. And I knew immediately that he had it, bang, just like that. Then we did, start-
0: he know, did he know he had it?
1: Oh, I don't know, you'd have to ask him Him that, I don't know. Okay. I knew he did, You know. Mm-hmm. and I knew he had the potential to be a huge star, but I also knew that having the potential to be a star and being one are very different. Even then, even when I was a kid, I knew that there was a, uh, you know, a big difference between being really talented and making it and becoming huge, you know.
0: Were any of the the musicians that you were playing with around New York? Did anybody break through before you did? No. You broke through so young. Yep.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Did anybody else?
1: No. Mm-hmm. I was really ambitious, and I really wanted to make it, and I really wanted to play, and uh, that, and I wasn't distracted.
0: Uh, ah. Yeah, everybody
1: was on dope back then. You got to realize. Everybody was high.
0: And you weren't?
1: No, I wasn't. I was I was. I was a nice little Jewish boy from the <laughs> suburb I was terrified of that stuff, you know.
0: Really?
1: So it was either speed or, or heroin. And everyone was doing it.
0: Well, yeah. including James, though.
1: James, the drummer in our band, was doing it. The bass player in our band, who eventually had to go home. Uh, the band before that, um, the King Bees, our great organ player and lead singer, ended up doing... They're doing heroin you know uh this is what's happening in the village everybody was doing dope not sm- just smoking reefer you know i didn't smoke reefer until i was 23 24 years old You know. excuse me
0: go ahead okay so how does the friendship and stealing stuff from the have a whatever it's called, store, turn into a playing together. I mean, okay, so you hear he has a great voice.
1: We had a you lot in common, and we were good buddies, and we laughed. We both um, have been grown up, in, grown up in, in similar circumstances. That is to say, his parents were intellectuals. My parents were kind of intellectuals, too. And um, my parents used to take me to all the Broadway shows, you know, once or twice what a was,
0: year. What, what was your first Broadway show? Do you remember?
1: Let uh, me um, Let me see. cowboy one um, Oklahoma so I saw the original Oklahoma the original uh, carousel the original my fair lady all that stuff cuz my mother you like it I thought it was great I couldn't believe it watching got people on stage you know I was like what the fuck I had never experienced anything like that before so I dug it it didn't make me want to be a Broadway person but I dug the performance aspect of it you know and um, James was the same thing. His James's James's mother used to take him and and one of his siblings up to New York a couple of times a year from North Carolina, and they would go to see all the shows. So he saw the same shows I did. It's <laughs> like that kind of thing.
0: Did you, uh, when you first started, Danny? Did you were ambitious? Did you did you want to be front and center when you started?
1: No, I never wanted to be the, the guy. I wanted to be in a band, mm-hmm. like the Beatles and the Stones.
0: You want, you never wanted to be the guy, but, and when did you start writing?
1: Uh, when I was 16.
0: And right away, was it quality?
1: No, it stunk. It was (laughs) terrible. I didn't write a good song for like, I don't know, years. (laughs) Wow.
0: Okay. So, so, okay. You and James had a lot in common. And so how do you guys start to play together?
1: Well, we started jamming on blues mainly because we both were big Lightning Hopkins fans, and we loved the blues. And uh, we loved there was a folk bang at the time, a mm. folk bang, a folk movement. Uh, in a way, it was a bang. Uh, and while I never got into serious folk music, I definitely got into the concept of folk blues, what was then called folk blues, which was actually blues. <laughs> you know, anyway, it was marketed as folk blues, and I was mm. really into it. So was James, and we. Uh, Listen to a lot of Lightning Hopkins. Listen to a lot of Ray Charles, and various other people from that that uh, that era. Mm-hmm.
0: And so, how so? Did you start to just fool around together? Did you That's immediately that. put a band together and start going out there? Yeah, what I happened?
1: Fooling around and been friends of ours, room uh, living rooms and stuff, you know. And uh, really, it was nothing serious about it but then we decided we would go get a job as uh, at the local coffee house. And we did, you know, and uh, the coffee house was the unicorn coffee house on Martha's vineyard. Mm -hmm. And there are still posts. I still have a poster. It says Jamie and Koch.
0: Wow. (laughs) Um,
1: To be honest with you, I'd rather be Cooch than Koch.
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, uh, and so what year is that?
1: Uh, let me see. Um, 64. Wow. 64. That, okay,
0: that's really early. Yeah. So then what happens? You start, you don't play together all for the, for the next six years, right? You're no, doing you other things.
1: Back, you went back home and then uh, he ended up in, in uh, McLean's hospital. Um, and I started a band. Uh, kind of a rhythm and blues band. And that's the band I told you about that played up and down the coast and all mm-hmm. the New York discos at the time. And uh, we did that. We were like uh, playing the same kind of stuff as little uh, as, as the Rascals, but nowhere near as good. And everywhere we went, people would say it was, oh, you should have been here the last week the Rascals were here. Thought, oh, <laughs> but they were better than us, way better than us. So,
0: And then you... You started playing with Carol before...
1: Okay, I met Carol. The second band we had was The Flying Machine. That's the band James and I put together. Mm -hmm. We were playing at the Night Owl Cafe downtown. And I'm sure you've you've been there. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Okay, and we held that gig for a long time. as The Flying Machine. One of the other bands there was the middle class, who were very good. Middle class were really good. And uh, they had been signed to Carol and Jerry's, Jerry Goffin's, they they'd put a label to, they created a label for these guys. So they played there and, and they were really good. And uh, I got to be friends with them. And um, I was at that point, my pal, Charlie Larky, I think was the, who was the bass player, introduced me to Carol. He brought Carol down to see us and Carol sitting in a booth. And I wonder, I was shaking in my shoes cause I knew all about Goffin and King and how badass they were. And that was what I was aspiring to At
0: this point, you're already writing.
1: Yeah, oh, sure. But no. they wrote Up on the Roof.
0: I said, if I could write a song
1: a fifth as good as that, (laughs) I I would be in heaven. So I went over to her shaking in my shoes, but she was so sweet and and, and accepting and terrific. And uh, I talked to her for a while. And then I said, James, come on, come over here. I dragged him over to introduce him to Carol. Uh He was even more (laughs) nervous than me. He was like... Uh, uh, <laughs> and ran away, you know, and uh, so that was <laughs> how they met originally.
0: Wow! Uh-huh. And so then, how did how did it come together for for uh, for Sweet Baby James for that whole thing to happen with you guys? Well,
1: that's when Peter Escher enters the picture, and uh, my first band, the King Bees, had actually had done a very short tour, New England tour backing up Peter and Gordon, which was hilarious. Because we, we were completely the wrong band for, for that, you know. they had this How trip. so? Oh, well, we were playing like Otis Redding and James Brown songs. We didn't know from this shit. And
0: they were pop. Yeah. Like,
1: Please, rock me, lock me <laughs> away. I mean, how does this go? <laughs> what? You know? So um, it was a challenge for us, and I'm sure for them, too. But I became friends with Peter at that point. Very bright, very sharp. We had the same taste. In music and the same taste in movies and in literature. So we became pals.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: and then he went back. Peter and Gordon kind of broke up. Peter ended up going to work for Apple and being their head of, uh, whatever. After the flying machine, James ran back to North Carolina and then he decided he was going to go to England. And, uh, just as a folkster and not remember, in the flying machine, he was playing electric guitar. he could never hear himself. You know, James doesn't have, like, he's not a screamer, um, so it was obvious that he was more comfortable accompanying himself with acoustic guitar on this mm-hmm. low-key thing than it was trying to get over a two-guitar rock band. So, he went to England, he, um, this has all been documented, Vicky, but, uh, and I got him in touch with Peter Asher, I gave him Peter's uh, address and phone number, and he went over there, and he, uh, Peter got him a deal with Apple, and away we go.
0: And how did Russ and Lee come into the picture?
1: That was later when we did, um, well, first, first when we did a uh, uh, sweet baby James, uh, I think it was, it was, it was uh, Peter that discovered Russ. Russ was playing with John Stewart at the time. And he said, this guy's great. Would you like to come in and do sessions? And Russ turned out to be the perfect guy. But a lot of that is, is uh, well, it's Russ being brilliant. Musician that he is, and it's also Peter being the visionary, the guy who knows who the right people are. Then Leland came along, James, uh, not yeah, James went to see uh, this man, Wolfgang, a buddy of his, and, and he listened, he goes, That bass player is the greatest bass player I ever heard. He came back and he told Peter Asher, I've just heard a guy that's better than Paul McCartney. <laughs> so Russ yeah. and Leland ended up on the next album, which was Mudslide Slim. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, we all just went, like that. Mm -hmm.
0: And and how did Carol come in as a playing piano?
1: Well, you know, Carol, at that point, had put out a couple of albums that had tanked. And then uh, um, I'm not sure how it happened exactly. But Peter brought her in to play piano or asked her to play piano on some of that uh, stuff from Sweet Baby James. And we all knew who it was, we all loved her, and she was great. And she played the right kind of stuff, of course, you know. And uh, ended up being James's piano player. But James, as it's been well recorded, called her out at the Troubadour and said, I must introduce you to the woman playing piano. That's Carol King. She's written some of the greatest songs ever. And he actually brought her into the limelight, yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: And so... Did you know when you guys were making this music, did, did you know how great it was?
1: I knew it was great. I didn't know it was going to be, you know, Time Magazine cover, you know, but I knew it was great. But I also knew that great stuff doesn't necessarily make it, you know. Mm-hmm. So look, look at Laura Nero. I mean, you know. I, I love Laura Nero. She tanked horribly, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, and there's many more examples than that. Uh, uh, of people that were brilliantly talented, but uh, didn't get to that next place. So I knew that, even as a young man, I knew that. Mm
0: -hmm. And so how does your life change when that happens?
1: How did my life change? Yeah. I started to make more money, started to have more fun, because now we're going on the road, and James is usually successful. James wasn't having much fun, but the rest of us were. (laughs) Why wasn't he having fun because he was trying to deal with his fucking heroin addiction and he also he was very Insecure about it. James has a weird had at the time a weird relationship with the audience. He loved it He loved being able to play his music and get back this wonderful response But he also was never sure that it was the right. I guess there was he was a conflicted person James is a complex guy. Anyway, I don't want to go into all that, but uh, Anyway, now he's he's evolved into who he is Oh,
0: it should have been what's beautiful about going to see him now is that he still does that folk singer thing from the 60s where he tells the story of every song that he does and it's such and a beautiful he thing in. he
1: can play for for fifty thousand people and he brings all of them right in you know, absolutely that's a, great, that's a great
0: artist yeah it's a gift it's wonderful okay so so life changes in that you're making more money and that and and now you go and you do tapestry. Is, does tapestry happen after this? Well, it's around
1: the same time. Tapestry happened around the same time as a, as a Mudslide Slim, I believe. Yeah. And so I'm not, I'm not when, quite sure about the uh, chronology. Of, of,
0: and so, when you're working on this, do you have even an, I mean, you ha, do you have an inkling
1: that this is going to
0: be like the most iconic album of its? do you, do you know? Can you tell?
1: No, no idea. I knew Carol was great. Right. I knew those songs were great. I knew Lou Adler as a producer was great. Uh, but I didn't know what Lou knew. He, he knew that the, that this thing was perfect for the market. And that, that's his genius. He saw Tapestry as the love story, you know, the movie, the love story, as the album version of the love story, the movie. Wow. And he was right on the fucking money, you know. Uh, Lou is very, very bright fellow, you know, as we all know.
0: And also generous and wonderful. I was uh, listening to you say earlier from another interview that Lou and Peter Asher were the two people responsible for putting names of the sidemen on the albums that they started listing you guys, that which is. kind of changed your futures, right?
1: Completely. Absolutely. Absolutely true. Yes
0: because everybody of our generation knows your names, which of the Wrecking Crew, that was not really the case, right? Their
1: names were never on the albums. But remember now, the albums they were making were Nancy Sinatra, Dean Martin, who gives a shit, you know? (laughs) That's (laughs) the point. You know, the Beach Boys, yes, but they would never, the Beach Boys would never put all these side men down on their albums. So now they're playing for this very uh, middle-of-the-road stuff, and they're doing it brilliantly. Lots of movie scores, you know, but, uh, what I, you know, not to take away from Miss Sinatra, who I've no, you know, I've no nothing against, but that would not be the first thing I'd want on my uh, uh, resume. With, oh. I played on Nancy Sinatra's albums, you know. I, you see, I didn't give it. back then especially, I had a really bad attitude, even worse than the one I have now. <laughs> and I said, fuck this shit. <laughs> fuck this mediocrity, you know. Who gives a fuck? I want to play a music that means something. You know, I don't want to just go to what, ten to one, whatever. Give me the score. One, two, one, two, one, one, two, one, 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 one. Watch it. Oh, we're over. I didn't want to be that guy. I wanted to do stuff that was that would mean something. And I knew the people I was involved with were on the same page. Carol, James, Lou, Jackson. You know, I also knew Crosby and Nash. I knew New Orleans fellers. You know, back then, and they were serious. They weren't interested in in. Uh, you know, ten to one, two to five. They weren't interested in being slick; they were interested in telling the truth. And I loved that. Um, uh, what would you call it? Is it what would you call it? I'm not sure what to call it, but I loved that, that the idea that they were shooting really high uh, in terms of uh, tr- trying to create something that artistically and and uh, in, in, in society meant something.
0: Mm-hmm. It, was there anybody that you because you weren't. Did you play with anybody that you did go, oh, my God, I can't believe I played on that crap?
1: Yes. All, a lot of. A lot of. You did. Oh, yeah. Yeah. When okay. I was doing sessions in L.A., mm-hmm. uh, after Lou and Peter had, had given us big names, we were getting, all of us were being called to play sessions. Now, Russ and Lee, they did fine. They rhythm section. And they did really well with me. You know, <sighs> I have a definite style, a way of playing, and and I also have a definite attitude. I'm (laughs) not interested in being a studio sausage and playing mediocre music for people that don't give a shit. You know, and uh, I realized I don't want to be a, if that's what being, I thought being a session musician, being like Steve Cropper, you're doing, you know, <laughs> Stax where you go in and you play with the greatest cats in the world and you write the greatest songs with the greatest singers and then you, you, then you go home and then you come back and do the same thing again next day. That's kind of what I was hoping for, or Motown, you know, or Sea uh, saint in, in New Orleans. Now I go to LA and it's all just bullshit. It's, you know, everyone is making an album and most of the people aren't good. They aren't any good. You're just doing it for the money. And I never felt that I was gonna do something just for them. Maybe it's because I was a a spoiled Jew boy that I felt (laughs) that I was never interested in just doing it for the money. I I wanted to to work on stuff that was important. Jackson Mm -hmm. Brown, James Taylor, Carole King, David Crosby, Graham Nash, Neil, them.
0: So before, before them came Linda Ronsett, I think.
1: No, this is after. That was later. That, in-
0: that was later. Okay, so Jackson was at, was, came. Wait, so what, so you're great friends with James. You have this long history with him. Why do you guys stop working together?
1: Oh, uh, we had done 10 years together um, and played on every album and on every tour. We had, the last album I did with him was called Flag. Mm-hmm. And Flag was 10, it was a great album. I think, I still think that's great fucking album but a lot of it is rock and roll me and Waddy were both on that <laughs> that set. you can imagine you know now James realizes he's being pulled in this other direction he's not sure he wants to be in this direction but he also doesn't have the nerve to come to me and tell me you know this I, I knew I was gonna be fired definitely was gonna, and I and I should have been fired because I wanted to play rock and roll I wanted to turn that amp up and crank away you know I was tired of walking on eggshells we play with James you walk on eggshells, you know, because of his natural, because, because of him. And, yeah. and that's what you should do. And uh, I'm not taking away from anything. You know, uh, I learned a tremendous amount playing James's songs, which are very involved. Lots of changes. You had to really be on your toes to play those songs. He was one of the greatest ever. He's, he's you know, one of my absolute best friends in the whole world. But also... Still? Oh, definitely. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, so... My point was that I wanted to play rock and roll and I, and it was wrong for me to try to push James in this area. That wasn't, even though James sings great rock and roll, let me tell you, he kills, but, uh, he doesn't have the, the kind of voice you can sing for an hour and a half sing rock and roll for an hour and a half. He's got a tender voice, you know, and he works better with an acoustic guitar, quiet accompaniment. So I left, I quit probably the day before I was going to be fired. Um,
0: did you leave at a different, were Russ and, and Leland still there?
1: Yes, they, they kept playing with James, yes. Mm-hmm. That's right.
0: So, and do you, when you leave, are you and James on good terms? Is it okay? Yeah.
1: As far as I'm concerned, yes. I still loved him. He still loved me. Mm-hmm. And he, he knew why I left. And I knew that I was about to be fired, you know. And I didn't want to put him or Peter Asher through the firing me, you know. They loved me. They—they they knew, you know. I put them all together, and I was like completely pivotal in in both their lives. And also, I knew I wanted to go in a different direction. So I—I I thought it was, it was up to me to make that move. You know, if I want to play rock and roll, go play it. But don't, don't let don't let these people hang. Don't let let them hang, and don't make them fire you. You know. What was I mean?
0: it scary to leave?
1: I—I didn't get too too scared by anything back then. Uh, so, so did you go right
0: into the next thing?
1: No, I did not.
0: What, what, what happened when you left James?
1: Uh, what happened was I started running out of money. Uh, I was paying divorce bills. I was going to the market and checking out the price of cheese and then putting it back. Uh, the accountant that was supposed to be taking care of me fired me because oh. I didn't have much going. Uh, and then I was going, oh, shoot, what's going to happen next? The phone rings. Peter Asher says, would you at all be interested in playing with Linda Ronstadt? Ha. Huh. I said, when do I start? And with Linda, Linda, So
0: you left on good terms with Peter also.
1: Oh, of course. Absolutely. And, and mm-hmm. still, you know, he and I, we're brothers, man. We're in the, we're family. James is family. You know, when you know somebody for 50 years, yeah. more, north of 50 years, they're family. So anyway, okay. You want me to tell you the story of my life? All right, uh, so after that, I got this call. I, I learned Linda's set by listening to a cassette of her show and mm-hmm. went to the first rehearsal. And Linda, I knew Linda from before that great woman, very smart, very I mean super talented, badass. takes no shit from anybody. Type of so I got up there. The first thing we do is uh, first thing we rehearse is it's so easy. One, two, three, four, it's sound. Her voice coming through the, the side monitor was the loudest thing I ever heard in my life. I, went, I, turned, I turned my amp. up, I was like, oh fuck, here we go, come on. That's what I wanted to do, you know, was to play you with are the rock not board. defeated by stage volume, you know, and also I loved about Linda was that, well, she's one of the greatest singers that ever lived, yeah. uh, without any doubt, because I played with everybody, There's no one, no one any better than Linda, male or female. So then I had to learn her songs. Stop me if I'm droning on anyway.
0: No, 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 this is fantastic. For, for rock, For this is fantastic.
1: So Linda was doing, in her set, she would have a George Jones song, a Elvis Costello song, a Chuck Berry tune, a, a Jim Webb song, mm-hmm. a, a George Jones song. They were from all over the place and I loved that. I loved having you know, doing all this wonderful material Mm -hmm. That was all, you know, James, with James, it's just his songs. And and you, of course, learn his DNA. I certainly did. Right. Where he's likely to go and what he's likely to do in a song. But with Ronstadt, it was all this different shit. It was like, you know, starting all over again. And it was really great. I loved playing with her.
0: And so, and how long did you play with Linda?
1: Uh, A couple of years. I think it was two tours. Two tours and two albums, something like that. And, that, and
0: how did that end?
1: Uh, how did it end? How did it end? How did it end? No, um, I don't remember. Uh, she started yeah. doing opera, I think. You know. <sighs> Something else. And, oh, I know how it ended. I uh, I got hired by Don Henley to be a record producer.
0: And you've produced, uh, I I the list of people you've produced is absolutely. I mean, from John Bon Jovi to Toto to. I mean, you've produced huge albums. Um, was this something you always wanted to do as well?
1: I thought I'd be good at it, yeah. Cause I had learned from the best. I'd learned from Peter Escher and Lou Adler about how you produce. And I thought I'd be terrific at it. And, and they thought I would be good at it too. So uh, I went in that direction.
0: Yeah. And how was your temperament as a producer?
1: D- terrible. That's, yeah.
0: my, that's my curiosity.
1: <laughs> right the thing is i never would have been a successful i actually was a very successful producer in terms of i got to work with big stars Mm -hmm. but i never reached the holy grail of production which is to break an act to start with counting crows nobody knows who the fuck they are and then suddenly they sell three million records and you're the producer that is the holy grail of record production and i never did you
0: did you attempt to do that
1: i wanted to get those gigs you know But I was always—I always didn't get them, partly because of who I was associated with. By that time, once you do Henley and Bon Jovi and them, people put you in a bag. You're this kind of a guy, you know. Mm. uh, I also started hating my artists. The stuff I I was getting—these young bands—and you know the stuff that that, uh, Don was didn't want to produce, you know. And I was getting his rejects and stuff like this. And they were the young bands coming with all this attitude and the ego. And I started saying. In my mind, fuck you, you know, don't <laughs> have to fucking put up with this shit for, you know, why well, you yeah, shut the fuck up, sit down and do what I tell you. But of course, I never said that, you know, I would go, OK. Oh, well,
0: what? what's it like when you're producing like what I assume is a big ego, like a John Bon Jovi? I mean, there has to be ego there.
1: There's tremendous ego there, but he knows what he wants and he's very good at what he does. And he's not stupid enough to let his ego get in the way of excellence. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the point. If you're professional, you know what's good, you know where to go. If you're young and stupid, you, you, all you have is your ego, you see. And, and how about
0: with a band like, like enemy, Toto? Uh, where there had- someone
1: to, to hate is, is a, a <laughs> very a wonderful thing for young artists.
0: <laughs> how about with a band like Toto, where there has to be, I'm going to interview Lukather and Picaro soon, where there has to be a lot of egos going on. Is that difficult as a producer?
1: Well, it depends on who it is, really. You know, uh, uh, I'll accept an ego if that, if it's coming from someplace, if it's coming from knowledge, if it's coming from excellence, of course, you know, if it's coming from some knucklehead that's just, (laughs) no, no, you know, and that's why I was never, I never made it as a producer. I would, you know, one of these young bands, I would have, I would have told uh, the guys in Counting Crows, you suck. All right. Hey, (laughs) stinger. the fuck is wrong with you you make me want to puke you know so that would have endeared, endeared me <laughs>
0: yeah. oh my god but you didn't but you did make it as a producer i mean you've produced well, be successful
1: because i was hired by various successful people like billy joel trusted me and hired wow. me to produce uh neil trusted me and hired me to, to produce co-produce a record with him henley you know I got to uh, do 3 albums with him and Henley and
0: Riedel, is good. And, and co- and co-write so much yeah. music with him yeah. as well.
1: I would I would defy any producer to go through 3 solo albums with Henley. Go ahead babe, you. <laughs> I'll hold your coat, you know. <laughs> but I did. I loved him and he loved me and we made great music together, you
0: know. Now what now why why do you say that? What why was that you defy anybody to go through? Making three albums with it. Don
1: is not the easiest person to work to uh, to work with. He's, he, so? You know, he's got some Napoleon in him, but he also is a very sweet, loving man, and he kind of goes between the two. He's not sure which one to be because he's in business. He knows people are trying to rip him off because when you come from Linden, Texas, and your father is runs a a, a, a hardware store, and then you're in L.A. and you're making millions of dollars, you're you're cautious about people. You watch out for people, oh, and you know this, Lisa. Uh, and Lisa, I'm sorry, you know oh, okay. this, my dear Vicky. Vicky. Is, is that uh, the, the the not the stingiest, but the most alert people are the richest people. They're the mm-hmm. most alert about am I being ripped off? Does this person really like me? Or does it, right? That's the that's the province of wealthy people and famous people.
0: How did that collaboration start, you and Don?
1: Well, he was talking to everybody. He wanted he had to make a solo album. The Eagles had broken up. Glenn had made a solo album, which I played on, by the way. And um, Don realized he had to make a solo. So he started calling everyone in L.A. to come up to his pad and kind of jam with him and exchange ideas. And I'd heard about this, and I knew the phone was going to ring. I knew he was going to call me. He, you know, he would have had to. He did. I went up there, played with a bunch of ideas. After about three hours, he said, so um, do you want to work on my solo album with me? Yep. And that's how it started. He and I got along so, well. I I I loved him then, and I love him now.
0: And did you guys? Did you ever have this? Did you butt
1: heads? Did you? Oh, of course, all the time. Are you kidding? Me? I got fired three times. Three, <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I was constantly being fired. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: So okay, so you and Jackson, that collaboration. How did you meet?
1: Well, I met Jackson uh, when he was really young, nineteen or something. And wow. Uh, I was living on Ridpath Avenue up in um, uh, Laurel Canyon with a guy named Barry Friedman. It was his pad and I was his roommate. And uh, Jackson used to come up there. He was like 18 or 19. That's when I met him. And he'd pull out his guitar and sing a couple of tunes. I go,
0: fuck. He can sing.
1: (laughs) This guy's really good. Then uh, he had a gig. He had a little gig, solo gig, down somewhere in Hollywood at this little joint that you had to walk down a flight of stairs to get to. Just him. So a little coffee house kind of situation. So we went down there, me and Barry Friedman and somebody else. And I went, wow. <laughs> you listen to song after song by that guy, it's just like, man, this guy's definitely got it. He's got some, something else going on, man. And uh, he and I became pals you know, at a very young age. You know, He was a very, very young fella. And at this point right now, we are still very, very good friends and, and close, very close to each other. So.
0: And so, how did the, the writing club? I mean, somebody's baby. Okay, so the, here's my question. So, Ridgemont High, when I hear that song, I immediately think of Ridgemont High. Yeah. Now, that's the idea. So, the song was written first. They, how, how did that how did? Tell me how that happens. All
1: right. Well, uh, we were all friends with Cameron Crowe, and uh, Cameron was asking everybody that he knew, and he knew everybody to come up with uh, some songs for the soundtrack to uh, Festung for Ridgemont High. And um, I had this idea, somebody's baby, I was playing on piano actually. So I I had the chorus and those chord changes you hear. And I said, well, this could be really good, but I'm gonna need Brown to make it what it ought to be. So (laughs) I call him up and I go over there. This is the kind of stuff that used to happen back then. There was no big formal thing, you just, over to Brown lived right around the corner from me off of off of uh and Drive.
0: So wait, you got the you got the call to write the song from Cameron Crow and then well, you we called knew the,
1: to... no we all got the call to write. You it. all got the call. And we knew he was looking for material and I had this chord changes and the idea must be somebody's baby. I said this is good, you know. Now if I can pitch Jackson to do it. So I go over there and play what I had. And he said, well, that's really good. I said, this is not for you. This is for Richmond High. It's got this teen, this teenage kind of vibe to it, you know. And I said, as long as it's not, you know, you're so, because Jackson wanted his songs to have at least social or, or uh, uh, social content. Uh, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it, it, he didn't want to write anything as fluffy as somebody's baby. It's, now it's later. Now he realizes that that's a really, really good song. It's
0: a really good really song. Skilled.
1: His lyric on that is brilliant. And he plays it every night now.
0: So so you guys pitch it to Cameron? Is that no, how that pitch happens? Pitching
1: it to Cameron. We call Cameron. So we have this song. There's Jackson. Well, we have the song for it. End of discussion. You know, <laughs> that's it. You know, you want a song? We got a song. He didn't even ask to hear it. He knew that if it was coming from Jackson and me, it's going to be great. And he was, and he was going to need it. I don't think he realized how important it was going to be to the movie. It's but everything. I have, a, I have a signed poster somewhere from Cameron saying, "Thank you so much for helping this movie break through."
0: It, it is the movie. I mean, there's no way to think of that movie and not think of that song. It's just. Well, I'll take it. It's spectacular.
1: Okay, so song, a lot of a lot of uh, uh, legs, shall we say?
0: A lot of legs. You, but you've had a lot of songs with a lot of legs. So, is it? It was that your first monster hit?
1: Uh, hmm. I think "Dirty Laundry" was my first monster.
0: "Dirty Laundry" was before "Somebody's Baby."
1: I don't. You know, the fact is, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't actually remember. I think so, but I'm not sure. Mm-hmm.
0: God, Ridgemont High was like so long ago. Okay. Anyway, so so these these collaborations that turned out these these monster hits so you and jackson okay so running on empty this is this is a tour that is different than anything else because why is it different than anything else
1: well it's different because uh jackson had hired us hired us the section to play this stuff he wanted to play new material and at first he was going to do mat- new material and then blend it with with old stuff jack uh not not jackson russell said why don't you just make the whole album new material and um that's what happened we started playing all his songs and some of those songs are fantastically good and we went out and hit it and we recorded it all jackson's one of those guys once you get something in his head you can't stop him you can't stop him you know and we all said all right all right Jefe, let's go and we did we learned the material uh in, in rehearsals and i had to learn how to play with jackson because I had to find a style, because she's playing one thing. Lindley is doing what he does, which is awesome. So I had to find a way in between them, and I did finally. And um, we went out and we we hit it, you know. Incredible experience.
0: And so, what what ended that? Why did you move on from Jackson? What Everything happened then? On.
1: Everything moves on.
0: Everything, Everything moves on. And you're still great. Is, you know. And you're still great friends, and there's no there. Is there any is there any relationship that you left that there is hard feelings?
1: Uh, some of my ex-wives, yeah.
0: <laughs> well, that's a
1: whole different ball.
0: But musically, is there anything that ended badly?
1: There's there's nothing I can remember. There's things that did end badly, but there's no certainly no grudges or or, or bad vibes that I feel. I'm the luckiest guy in the world. You know? Okay, I'm not the luckiest guy in the I'm the thirty fourth luckiest guy in the
0: 30, who was the 33rd? No, I, never
1: mind. I was hoping you could tell me.
0: <laughs> okay. So I think maybe you have become the luckiest guy in the world because now you play with your best friends. That's right. Um, and well, not that you didn't play with your best friends when you were playing with James and Jackson. No, I, and all. Exactly right.
1: I always was playing with my best
0: friends. You were always playing with your best friends, but, but now you get to play with these guys that you've been playing with uh, other than Steve, you've been playing with the, wait, how did you and Wadi uh, connect? How, what was the first thing you guys did together? All
1: right. So I'd been hearing about Wadi, he'd been hearing about me. And then Lou in his in, infinite wisdom, he was producing an album by Tim Curry.
0: Oh God, the Rocky Horror Picture yeah, Show. Yeah, he was a yeah. great
1: guy and a really good singer too. So he hired, I think it was Russ and Lee as the rhythm section, I can't remember, but I think it was either one of them or both of them. And he hired me and Wadi, I'd never seen Wadi before um so i'm there wadi walks in i take one look at him and i say i love this guy how could you not look at him look at this pretty guy you know he's a puppet how could you not love this guy you know i sat down and we realized we both loved reggae we bonded over reggae i'm talking like in a minute you know of him sitting down we immediately Uh, oh, got got it, and
0: there's never, not even from the beginning, not a moment of like we're both like we're both guitar players, this is going to be like there's none of that there ever. We're
1: we're always yelling at each other, we have terrible (laughs) fights, you know, but it's always about the music, you know. What do you mean, man? What do you mean you don't get it? You know, what's the matter with you, you know, (laughs) stuff like that. But, Two uh,
0: Jewish guitar players on top
1: yeah, of it. Yeah, yeah of course. But, you know, most people can't stand, either. both of us are from New York, so most people in L.A. run from us, you know. Uh, <laughs> so, so that collaboration... It's not like we're going to pull knives I'm never going to speak to you again. It's like we're fighting about uh, an arrangement or, or about music or about a set list or something like that. But we don't mind yelling because we're both from New York. That's what you do. You yell, you know. <laughs> but it scares but far Californians. Far
0: as, but, but as far as... Pl- and the, as far as playing together though, it seems like you guys do it seamlessly. and
1: I... That's right, yeah, we do. Uh, the reason for that is he plays very differently from me, mm-hmm. but he understands what I do and I understand what he does. In all the sessions, we did tons of sessions together and played a bunch of stuff. We've had, never had a very long conversation about what we're gonna do. A long conversation would be, uh, all right, you go high, I'll go low. That would be like a long conversation.
0: <laughs> so, okay. So, so it comes time that, okay. You tell the story of how the immediate family comes to be.
1: Well, I had a solo deal uh, offered to me from a Japanese label.
0: And wh- how long ago is this?
1: Uh, four years ago. I guess about four Wow, years, is that? Okay. Or five years ago. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. I don't know from time, man. Um,
0: Not that long ago.
1: Not that long ago, thank you. And um, uh, Vivid Records from Japan had called my buddy Fred Mullen and said, would Danny Korchmar be interested in making a solo album? Freddy calls me. I said, "Well, yeah. At first I was scared. You know, The first thing was, oh shit, it's a solo album. <laughs> and then uh, I started thinking about it. Went, well, all the tunes I've written for other people, there's that. Plus I have a bunch of new tunes. And I started writing. Once I knew I was going to make an album, I, I wrote a couple of things right then. Then, when it comes to uh, how it's going to be recorded, um, I called Russ and Lee assuming that they would be gone. You know, because they're always gone. They were both available and they both said, yes, we'll do it. I said, listen, I don't have much to pay you. I paid them like a third of what these guys usually get. They said, we don't care. Pay us anything. It doesn't matter. We'll be there. All right. Now we're in business. Russ and Lee, game over. Then we called Jim Cox, who was one of the greatest Keyboard players like ever. You know, the guy's not fucking believable. And he agreed to come do it for a, a, a less amount than he would get or deserves. So Wadi wasn't available. He was out with Stevie, but the last day of, of sessions. Oh, then I called Jackson. He gave me his studio for free. No studio time. Studio time is 2200 a, a day. He didn't charge that or anything. Um, then Wadi came in. Uh, right at the last day, he finally finished up with Stevie and added a tremendous amount. And at that point, we looked at each other and we said, well, this should be a, a band, you know. And you know, everyone agreed. It, it was so, so obvious. In other words, it wasn't like...
0: Wait, wait, how does Steve get into this mix? How does well, Postel
1: get in there? in there? I knew Steve. Steve was my pal. And he's one of the reasons I moved out here to Marina Del Rey. Uh, and uh, Steve is a very adaptable and uh, adaptable and adept musician and singer and um he helped me tremendously on that first album that i just mentioned to you in doing pre-production because that's the only way we get through it that means we start off we record an acoustic guitar part and a vocal and a click track now we put that up that means the whole band plays to the click track and so we're not starting with that We, we already have that to play to and these boys you know they learn a song in five seconds you know so um um that, that, that's how it went, and that's why Steve became invaluable. After those tracking sessions, we had to go back to Steve's. All the overdubs, all the vocals were done at Steve's. And at that point, he was just, he had kind of integrated himself into the situation. You know, he's very talented. And, uh, yes,
0: I've been booking him for almost, for over 40 yeah. years. He's got yeah. that
1: high vocal, he can sing. Uh,
0: like an angel.
1: angel. And he can play stuff Wadi and I can't do, like classical guitar and stuff. That Watt and I don't do. He does what he does stuff Wadi and I don't and or, or and can't do. So mm.
0: Yeah, it's a beautiful blend. So okay, so 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 they come together to do this record with you, mm. and it's such a great experience that and and how do you you, you get the name? How does where does the name come from?
1: The name, name came from me, but I realized, you know, when I said immediate family, I realized it's not not that great of a name for a rock band, but it's true. That's what we really are. We are immediate family. And uh, nobody said no. Wadi said, well, that's not a very good name for a rock man. I said, you're right, it ain't. But it's true. You know, is it as good as the Rolling Stones? No, it's not. But it is an accurate representation of, of who we are and what, what we are to each other.
0: So how does this work now? Because Lee and like Russ, they're off with Lyle and, and Wadi's off with Stevie. And so how do you guys make this work?
1: Well, that's a good question because it doesn't work. Uh, It's very arduous to make it work. Mm. Uh, Russ and Lee had to go out this summer, and they went out this summer because Waddy has to go out with Stevie. Waddy's been, Stevie's a musical director for 25 years. She can't go out without him. Plus, that's his only source of income at this point. So um, once he took those gigs through the summer and into the fall, Russ and Lee, who didn't, didn't really want to play with Lyle Lovett, took the lyle lovett tour you know no not that that's a shit tour every musician on that tour is great and uh although i i've never heard it i'm not a big lyle lovett fan i'm more interested in sam and dave than, than lyle lovett but uh <laughs> but it's i'm sure it's a great show and i'm sure their band that band is phenomenal there's no question
0: so so okay, so the film the film gets made through, through COVID, through the pandemic. all of that is going on. Denny Tedesco somehow managed to put together one of the greatest rock and roll documentaries that I have ever seen. It's just brilliant. Wow. And wow. you guys and you come off smelling like a goddamn rose. I will tell you that right now.
1: <laughs> what is it?
0: I was absolutely shocked. I mean, you are charming and smiling and and having a wonderful time. And that is clear. And it's lovely. Um, so somehow this manages to get made during the pandemic and it manages to get finished. And now you it's got a distribution deal. So and it did all the festivals and did all of that. And it's going to come out when? Uh, December. December. So. How, what's next for the immediate family? How, how are you guys going to come together again?
1: Good question. All right. So February, we have a bunch of gigs. When I say a bunch, I mean five or six. One of them being the Rock and Roll Cruise, which I'm sure you've heard of it, And you should probably be on.
0: I would uh, love to. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and, uh, of course, Wadi can't make any of that. Oh. So, and we have a choice of canceling the whole tour which is two dates in California the cruise and then two dates in in, in Miami and um, oh so now we have a choice between canceling that gig. And if we cancel that gig our uh, agency is gonna lose faith in us everyone's gonna lose faith in us you know so we we're fortunate to get a sub Elliot Easton <laughs> <laughs> no.
0: I've known Elliot
1: and Elliot as you know is a terrific guy great guy and I had
0: no idea right. about this.
1: Right. Well, this is now I'm telling you. We okay. knew we had to have a sub to replace Wadi for this thing to con, to uh, convince the um, the bookers that that we were an entity. The alternative is cancel the whole thing. Um, and so now, trying to keep this thing alive, as you can see, is, is is arduous. I at one point swore that we would never do anything if it wasn't the four, the five of us. But at this point, if we cancel this, we're taking money out of the guy's pockets, out of my boy's pockets. You know, we're we're, we're telling our ma- our management and our agency that, we, you know, that we're not really that serious. We're sending out a bad message. And this is very difficult for me because I'm at an age now where I only want to do what the fuck I want to do. You dig? I don't do anything I don't want to do. You know, I'm old. I'm in a bad mood. <laughs> I don't <laughs> want to be left the fuck alone. Old you know? and cranky. That's me. <laughs> But uh, this is something that had to be done. Also, I love to play. It's, it's everything else, and everyone will tell you that. It's not the, it's not the part where you're on stage. It's, it's a cliche to say it. It's getting there. It's setting up. It's, it's all that. It's the, it's the transpo and uh, the lodgings and all that that are difficult.
0: So how right. long is Waddy out with Stevie? How long is that tour? Good
1: question. Uh, I believe he's through March and April.
0: So were you looking to have some stuff then?
1: Hmm. Yes and no. I'm hoping so, yes, that we could do some stuff then, uh, unless uh, Stevie starts to book more gigs at that Mm. time. And if she does, you know, we're going to be in a really bad situation. Do I hold, you know, am I angry at Waddy for this? Of course not. He's got to make a living. And he's been working with Stevie for 25 years. Yeah. The way predates this band. I don't blame them, you know. Um,
0: how do you do werewolves of london without Waddy?
1: we don't you
0: don't you just don't
1: no if we do, you, have do, a, do a movie, you do
0: a cars song what, what, yes, what do yeah, you...
1: we do a couple of cars songs
0: uh-huh mm-hmm. yeah
1: that makes sense
0: no well,
1: that'll yeah. be fun it ain't what yeah. the thing is and we got a movie coming out now in and which Waddy in which Waddy is a big part of we got an album coming out now which Waddy was a big part of and he's uh, unavailable you know so I'm not sure and, and and COVID also just kicked the shit out of us, you know. Yeah. Us and a lot of other bands too. It's very yeah. difficult to keep to keep it on uh, uh keep it on the rails at this point F- financially. Just to tour, anything is like a risk. You know? Yeah. So uh so
0: you got you got COVID during during the pandemic. Right, Did you yeah. get it when you were
1: touring? I got COVID the uh, Maybe a month or three weeks before we were supposed to go to New York to do some really important gigs. All right.
0: Then I got over it.
1: My doctor gave me uh, Paxaville or something whatever that.
0: Paxlovid, yeah.
1: And it went away. So I go to New York. We do the first gig. It's okay. I go back to my hotel and I start getting sick mm. uh, right away. And uh, so I grab the test kit. Positive. Now I got to go down and tell the fellas. I'm testing positive for COVID. We have a gig that night and another gig the next day, an important gig at Iridium in New York for the bunch of people that were going to come, bookers and stuff were going to come, I had to cancel both of them, you know, because I got this fucking, and it was just a head cold. I would have gone on, you know, but uh, the fact of me having COVID, first of all, you know, the other guys in the band, Wadi can't get COVID because then he can't tour with Stevie. Right. Still can't get COVID because he's got other health issues.
0: Right. Uh, oh, God. See what I mean? And what? Ha- wh- when did you get it the second time? Was that the first time or the second time?
1: That's yeah, so what I just described to you was the second time. I was in New York, ready to go. We did the first gig. I went home, and I got sick. I got, like, basically a head cold, you know? So I said, oh, shit. Then I tested for, for the virus, tested positive, and had to go downstairs where everyone was having dinner and tell them. Bad.
0: And, and it's moved through the band. Uh, you're not the only one that's gotten right. it. Everyone
1: in the band has had it at one point or another. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. So so now, moving forward, are there aspirations other than the immediate family, or is this your is this your thing?
1: Now? Well, I'm thinking more COVID would it would probably be great. You know?
0: <laughs> well, just stand in line because there's a new variant, and everyone I know is getting it. So. <laughs>
1: All right. Well, the next play is to get through these dates in February with Elliot. Mm-hmm. And as you know, Elliot is a joy to be around. Lovely, lovely guy and a terrific player. So we'll do that. Then we go into March, April, and I'm really not sure what's happening there. Uh, and I don't think Wadi is either. Right now, he says there's no gigs booked with Stevie. So maybe they can book us some gigs then, you know, around that
0: time. Are you writing?
1: Yeah, I am. <sighs> yes, I'm, I'm writing, but at this point I'm not really writing for the band. I wrote a bunch of stuff for the band for an album that will come out when the movie comes out. We have an album that's sitting in the can and been sitting there for a year, more than a year. And it's really good.
0: I, I, I have some leaked tracks,
1: yes. Then you know it's very good. It's but am good. I inspired to write more songs for the band? No, I'm not. No, I'm not. Not in this market and not in this this reality. You know, I'm tired of us busting our our ass to make this stuff and getting no response at all, you know, because there's no niche for us. You see, we're not, you know, rock is now, well, it's Foo Fighters and Foo Fighters like stuff. There's no room for us in, in modern rock radio. So where is there room for us? You know, we have no, (laughs) no way to, we got to figure out a way to get to our audience. If there is,
0: you got to, you got to play live. You got to play, gotta play live. live.
1: And I'll tell you something, I'm 77 years old. There's only so much of this stuff I'm prepared to do. All right. I don't need the fucking money. And I certainly don't need a hundred dates a year where I got to live in a bus. Nope. Been there, done it. You mm-hmm. know? And I'm not the only one in the band that feels that way. So I'm not sure where we're going to go or how it's going to work. You
0: know. So, wh- so what's your life like, Danny? What, 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 what are you, what are your days like?
1: Well, I have a routine, you know, that I do. I go to the gym. I go to physical therapy. I've had to have back surgery, so I'm doing that. I play the guitar a lot. I do vocal lessons a lot. I call my daughters and uh, a lot and other friends. That's it.
0: Life is simple.
1: Yeah, I go out on to social events when they're there. When I was with my angel, Lisa, mm-hmm. there was a lot more of that, you
0: know. Do you but go that... out to hear music?
1: No. I haven't been out to hear music in a long time. Mm. Mm-hmm. It would take a lot to get me out to hear, to go hear music.
0: Are you COVID fearful, weary? Are you no. careful?
1: I don't care at this point. Mm-hmm. I had COVID twice. Basically, it was like a head cold, basic cold. Mm-hmm. I was prepared to go and play, you know, even though I was sick and I didn't like it, but I, I've been I've been in that position before. Mm-hmm. But it was because I was tested positive positive. The other boys didn't want me on stage.
0: So no date set for for Southern California?
1: Yeah, uh, for Southern California? I'm not sure about that. Not not immediately, no. Where do you play in Southern California? The Mint? Great. I love playing The Mint. I don't, you know. Uh, There's no fucking place to play, you know.
0: What about, uh, oh God, I can't think of the name of those places. There's two of them. There's one on the... Oh God! What are they well, there's, called? There's the
1: Troubadour and the Roxy, and those are the only two joints in Hollywood that you'd want to play. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, everything no, else. but the
0: place that you guys played last—I can't think of what it's called. The the Bogie? something, not bogeys, the something club. The, the the oh fuck, I can't think of what it's called. The
1: last anyway. place played in L.A. was was the the Mint how
0: about before the time before that? No, it's the time before oh, that. It's one
1: of those places. There's a the
0: ca- no, no, yeah, no. right. There's the no, coach
1: no. house and there's the uh, Canyon Club.
0: The Canyon there's, Club. That's what I was like
1: thinking four of. Four of those. They're all owned by the same fella, and wow. uh, we played all of them mm-hmm. twice. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I hope there'll be a Southern California date. I hope it'll be the Greek Theater, actually, or the Hollywood Bowl, because that's what you guys deserve, and. Um, I I hope that's in your future. But Danny, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. Thank you. Thoroughly enjoyed the time. And I can't wait to see you guys play out live. Nobody rock and rolls like you guys rock and roll.
1: We'll be out there. We'll be out there for sure.
0: Well, and everybody um, get ready for the the movie, The Immediate Family. It is not to be missed. It is spectacular. Great.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Take good care, Danny. All
1: right, my dear. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you. you. Bye bye. (laughs)